Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Paul starts off in the 11th chapter with a verse that dangles. It almost belongs to the 10th chapter. They should have probably put it there when they made the chapter revisions. And he starts off saying, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And that doesn't tie in really with the subject matter of the 11th chapter. So it just kind of maybe a transitional statement from what he has just told them, the things he has taught them, and then kind of reinforcing his authority as an apostle. He just says, imitate me. Do what I do as I do what Christ does. Therefore, listen to me. I have apostolic authority. So we just get that verse out of the way and start in the next verse, the second verse, and he says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I pass them on to you. And we don't know precisely what Paul is talking about. Certainly as he's writing the letter, he cannot say that the things he has advised them of, that they are taking it into consideration because they haven't read the letter yet. So he couldn't have written that. But evidently, he's talking about some of the things that he had taught them before, addressed to them, and they responded to that. So Paul is using that very diplomatic approach whenever, you know what the sandwich method is, and when you compliment somebody, and then you deal with the issue, and then you compliment them again. So Paul's kind of blending in the compliment here, and he says, I want to praise you for something. I want to give you some credit. I've taught you some things that you've really taken to heart. But he says, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now buckle your seatbelts. We're going to get into what the theologians call one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. And one reason why it's difficult is because as I'm reading this, you'll realize it's real easy to misunderstand exactly what Paul is telling them. And the misunderstanding, misinterpretation of that has caused a lot of problems in modern-day churches. So with that in mind, let's read through this. Don't make any uh, firm interpretations until we have a chance to explain things for you, okay? Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered disgraces his head. Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head. For it is one and the same thing as having a shaved head. For if a woman will not cover her head, she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head or her head shaved, she should cover her head. For a man should not have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for man. For this reason, a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In any case, in the Lord, 
Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For just as a woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone intends to quarrel about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. My, 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 my. What are we going to do with this? Well, first of all, let me start to unravel this for you. I, I hope you will stay engaged throughout the whole thing so you go away with a clearer understanding of the context of what Paul is saying, what he was saying to, to them, what it says to us, so we don't leave with any misgivings about this. First of all, let's understand the term the head. This issue concerns how men and women were expected to physically prepare themselves for worship. Christ is the head of man. He sets up this, this order of things. The man is the head of the woman. God is the head of Christ. What does it mean for a man to be the head of the woman? Men would give you a different interpretation of that than women would. Men have used that as leverage against their wives for centuries. Because after all, if the Bible says right? Is it a shame for a man to worship with his head covered? And what does that mean? Is it a shame for a woman to worship with her head uncovered? And what have you women done today? What does it mean to be covered? Why is it a shame? And why do modern day people typically read this and interpret this as mainly hairstyles? And then it says, since man is the image and the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, what does that mean? How does that relate to covering one's head when one is worshiping? These things are so foreign to us because we're not of that same culture. And then it says, for this reason, a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? What does that mean? And what does the angels have to do with it? Then he says... Nature itself teaches us man should not have long hair. What's considered long hair? What was long hair in Paul's day? And how does nature teach us that? First of all, the translation says the man is the head of the woman as though to imply that all males have some sort of superior status to all women. After all, man's the head of the woman. But you, first of all, let's just lay that one aside. That's not what it's saying. It's what it appears to say in the King James translation or uh, maybe a couple other translations because it uses the word man and it uses the word woman where actually it really, in the context, should be saying a husband and a wife. So we're not just putting all women in subjection to men the world over. But when you come into a relationship, then Paul is speaking about man is the head of the woman. But I'm not out of the hot seat yet because we still got a problem with what does that mean? But at least we've established that this is not some general statement about all men being superior to all women. The Greek terms for man and woman are when they are used together, man and woman, typically is referring to husband and wife. And they would have used those terms if they knew 
we in the 21st century would struggle to understand what they were saying. But they, they understood it, and we don't. So we have to really honestly translate this husband and wife to understand, first of all, who specifically he is talking about. What's it mean to be the head? Does it mean the authority? Does it mean the one to whom everybody bows and worships? What's the head? God is the head of Christ. Does that make Christ inferior to God? I mean, you just ask that simple question. Certainly, it does not. But there's an order in which things were done in the Godhead without distracting from the, the quality of the of the individuals themselves, the personages in the Godhead. So you can have an order in the Godhead without having inferiority in the Godhead. You understand that? Take that one and nail it to the wall for a minute because you're going to have to hang on to that to understand this. Therefore, if Christ can, uh, if God can be the, the Father can be the head of Christ, and then you can also have the husband be the head of the wife without having a case of inferiority, superiority going on. But first of all, in what sense is the husband the head? I, I will suggest, first of all, he is the head in the sense that God has certain expectations of the husband. He also has certain expectations of the wife in the marriage relationship. But of the husband, God expects the man to be the spiritual leader. And God determined in his design of the marriage, I want the man to be the spiritual leader leader. I want him to take the lead in this. I want him to make the decisions that as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. I want the man to do that. Does the man always do it? He does not always do it. That's the man's failure. He will be held responsible for not taking the leadership, the direction in that matter. So God wants a man that stands up in his family and says, we're going to be a family that worships the Lord Jehovah God. We're going to be a family that honors him by honoring his church, the body of Christ. We're going to be a family that honors God by studying his word and applying the truths of the word to our lives. We're going to be a family of God that tries to emulate the character, the person of Jesus Christ and pleases him. These are the things that the man is supposed to be promoting in the family. In that sense, he is the head. He is the lead. If the man doesn't do it, guess who does it? If it's going to get done, it has to be the woman that does it. God bless the women who will pick up that mantle and do it if they don't have a man around to take that lead. God will bless you for filling in and doing that because it has to be done. It has to get done. It's like making arrangement in your, in your uh, household. Uh, you can say, man, the man's going to be in charge of maintaining the house. But if it doesn't get maintained, the woman picks up a hammer and screwdriver and goes after it, doesn't she? Except for that part about using the butter knife for screwdrivers. That drives me insane. Second, having order is not the same thing as having authority. In Jewish culture, they understood this. The first was always given special honor. The firstborn was giving special honor. Does that make the firstborn the smartest? Not always. The most talented, there's no guarantee of that. The most important, how in the world can a parent ever say, I love my firstborn more than I love the rest of them? They love all of their children equally. So you're trying to find qualitative things about the firstborn. They say, you're special because. Why? Well, because you're firstborn. <laughs> it just kind of goes along with it. That is, there will never be another firstborn. 
And in Jewish culture, they loved to recognize that. The eldest people in the, the, the community, they called the elders. They honored them because they had, uh, just because they were oldest. Being oldest, once again, doesn't mean you're the wisest. But it does mean they're deserving of honor. So there's something in Jewish culture that just honors that firstness. So Adam was created first. Doesn't make Adam inherently superior to Eve. But there's something about our honoring the first in order. That's a godly thing. It's a biblical thing. And that's okay. The mind acquainted with Jewish culture would not have struggled at all with Paul saying the man being created first becomes symbolically the head. We just honor that as a matter of the order of creation. It honors the story of creation by doing that. And then finally, Paul uses the term head to mean two things. First of all, he, he, he means the physical head, and then he means the metaphorical head as the one that is honored. And not necessarily, once again, we are diminishing this concept of authority because he's not really using the term head as authority in this as you and I possibly would in this day and age. So here's some examples of where Paul uses the term head twice in the same breath, yet he means two different things when he says it. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered disgraces his head, but he's not talking about disgracing his head. Who's the head of the man? So a man who covers his head when he prays disgraces his head, Jesus Christ. The woman who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered disgraces her head, her husband, for it's one and the same as having a shaved head. There is a very clear implication here that when our actions are dishonorable, we don't just shame ourselves. When we do dishonorable things, we inevitably bring dishonor to somebody else. That's the one thing you really have to glean from this. If I do something dishonorable, it's not just me. I'm shaming Christ because I have pledged myself to honor and love him. And if the woman did something that was considered dishonorable in that culture, and that was praying with her head uncovered, she is also dishonoring and shaming her husband because he's a part of that. You people in marriage understand that. Either one of you, the husband or the wife, you do something dishonorable, you bring shame on the other one. That's not a hard concept to understand. So Paul says a man dishonors Christ, a woman dishonors her husband just by doing these things. It doesn't mean that Paul is by any means inferring that the husband is incapable of shaming his wife by doing something dishonorable as well. But in that culture, it was considered dishonorable for her to pray with her head uncovered. So everything Paul had to say about praying or prophesying with the head covered or uncovered, was against a cultural backdrop that we don't understand because we don't have that kind of a cultural understanding of praying with the head covered or praying with the head uncovered. Men, having their head covered, would have either resembled the practice of the pagan worshipers in those days whose men typically covered their heads or it would have been a mockery of his masculinity. There were reasons, cultural reasons, why the men in those days would not pray with their head covered. Culture recognized that would not have been appropriate. If a Christian man in the church covered his head, there would be people who said, that's the way the pagans pray. 
Now, we don't have that kind of a contrast in our day and age to understand that or grasp that. That's why this is one of the hardest passages, because we are so removed from that culture and the understanding of their cultural practices. But if that man did it, there'd be Christians who would criticize them and say, don't do that. That's what pagans do. We don't do that. We pray with a head uncovered because we want to bring glory to God. We are not ashamed he created us. We're not ashamed of our creator. We're not afraid of him. For whatever reasons the pagan may have covered his head, that's all the reasons that the Christian men don't need to. They're not hiding from God. They're not ashamed of God. They're praying before God. Now, what about the women covering their head? That was basically, uh, in the Greek, it's, it's referring to the head covering, wearing their hair up. And it wasn't because it literally gave them a covering and a hiding from God, but it was because they did not want to resemble the pagan women who wore their hair down. Because in that culture, and I'm not talking about today's culture, but in that culture, the pagan women wore their hair down, and they wore it very flowing, and they wore it very freely. And that hairstyle would have been clearly associated with wicked, evil, ungodly pagan women, even women of irrepute, prostitutes. And so for a woman to come into the church looking like a pagan woman with the pagan woman's hairdo, Paul is saying that would not be appropriate. She should wear her hair up to distinguish herself from the pagans. So everything Paul is saying about the men and the women in worship is don't bring anything into the house of God that resembles pagan worship. And how do we translate that into today's culture, into today's church? Well... First of all, we don't want to worship like the pagans worship. We don't want to bring the things of the world into our worship. We don't want to look like the world when we worship. We don't want to act like the world when we worship. We don't want to dress like the world when we worship. We want to worship God. Worship is special. Now, Paul is talking to these people because they, to them, it was important to properly present yourself in worship before God. And I have to ask a question at least of myself, and you, welcome to listen in. And that is, I wonder if we are really losing that sense of properly preparing ourselves physically to worship God. How do you distinguish the manner in which you come to worship God from the manner in which you go do everything else in life? Is it a special activity to you? Now, I know we can get legalistic, and that we want to shun as well. That tricky pendulum swings all the way to the left and swings all the way to the right, and both extremes are not desirable. But finding that, that center place where you actually have to live, where things make sense without being extreme to the left or to the right. But do we make a distinction in how we present ourselves before the Lord? If we don't, then you're not approaching worship with the same mindset that historically the church, the Christians have approached worship, and historically the Jews have approached worship. I was interim pastoring a a little tiny community church, Assembly of God Church in a tiny community just before I came up here to Davenport. And the most charming people in the whole world, they really were. And I I just love sitting down and listening to their simple way of life, their simple life philosophies, just country people. And one man uh, who was telling about 
his father, who was a farmer. This man was a farmer. His father was a farmer. And he said, my dad would never go to town in his dirty overalls. He had his work overalls on. But he said if he had to stop working and go to town, he would go home and he would change it to his clean overalls. <laughs> Not like he put on his suit. He still had overalls. These are my clean ones. These are my work ones. He said he would go home and change it to his clean overalls, go to town and get what he needed, come back, change back, and go back to work. Now, you know, things like that, it seems like our culture is losing that sense of, of respect for self and presentation. And that has bled over into the church. I think we've become so casual with God that even on a personal level, it might be different for you than it is for me, but how do I present myself before God? It's important how you come before God. Is it important to you how you come before God? God is special. I would challenge you to, to think about that because we're here to honor God, to present ourselves, to make ourselves presentable before him as they have done for centuries in worshiping him. The point is, it should matter to us how we present ourselves before God. Not that we all ought to align ourselves with one fixed standard, but we on a personal level ought to do something special for God when we present ourselves before him. The third thing is Paul implies that both men and women are permitted to pray and to prophesy in public worship. And that's, that's a point that's easy to miss as we're looking at all the other things about the regulations about covering the head or not covering the head and who's shaming who. And, but he slips in there this little bit of information that I think you women ought to find very, very interesting. And that is he just casually mentions when men pray and when women pray, when men prophesy and when women prophesy, and he has just clearly implied that women do pray and women do prophesy and women do participate in the worship. But... It appears very clear in Scripture that Paul, the theologian, had no problem with women participating in the worship service, in praying and in prophesying, which is symbolic for many other things that went on, or even preaching. So women have a place in the kingdom, just like men, in ministering and worshiping. And it's a shame that there are still people stuck in a, another century mentality where they think because Paul said some things culturally based about women that women have a, a subservient role. Women are highly prized in, in the Bible and valued by God and welcome in ministry and in worship. Now, Paul comes to the part about, now doesn't nature itself teach us that it's wrong for a man to have long hair. I've heard that, that uh, scripture quoted so many times in my lifetime, particularly back in the day. How many of you know what I mean when I say the Jesus movement? How many of you know what I mean? I got a few hands. Is it really that many of you don't know what I mean? <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I lived through it, so I know what it means, the Jesus movement. How many of you know what I mean when I say hippies? <laughs> now we've got a common ground. We can start into the Jesus movement when we start with the hippies, okay? And the hippies were a, a group of people that, that physically, uh, they rebelled against uh, the culture. 
and they would distinguish themselves from the establishment by uh, the men growing their hair long and their manner of dress with their flowery things going on and flowers in their hair and flowers and, and tie-dye and uh, you, could, you could distinguish hippies pretty quickly. And then there was a move of the Holy Spirit that swept across the United States uh, thanks in part to the charismatic movement that had started, Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, Women's Aglow, and the move of the Holy Spirit and the things happening. And, and uh, Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel out in California uh, would go out of his church and go down to the beach. And he'd find all these hippies down there at the beach, barefooted, bell-bottoms, long hair, the beads, and uh, the men usually growing their beards. It was all anti-establishment. And he began to minister to them on the beach, and they started getting saved. And then he'd invite them, come to church. We want you at church. And he opened his church up to the hippies that just got saved. And once in a while they'd come in and bring their guitars because they were writing their own little folk songs, you know. And he said, well, get up and sing a song for us. So they did. Now, this happened to a certain degree in the church I was growing up in, a little uh, conservative Assembly of God church in Chillicothe, Missouri, where there were some hippies, part of that hippie culture running around that started getting in on the Jesus movement. And they were opening up places where they would put wire, big these wire spools and turn them over on the side and make tables out of them. And they were coffee houses and, and they would go and have rap sessions around the coffee table and, and invite their friends and, and revival started and kids were getting saved that I knew in school as being in the rebellious hippie movement and they were getting saved and looking for a place to, to be able to serve God and worship him. And so uh, our pastor at the time was reaching out to the, to the, to the Jesus people, uh, otherwise known, known as the Jesus freaks. And he wanted them to come to my church. But we had people in our church that was not comfortable having these people in our church because they didn't look like us. And they would come in, and men would have long hair. And they would uh, say, what in the world is with this man with long hair and this man with a beard? And I mean, men wear beards. That, they just, it just, that's just kind of nature to tell you that, at least. So here come in these, these kids with their, with their uh, frayed bell bottoms and their paisley shirts and their beads and their, and their beards and their headbands and their long hair. And he invited Mike to get up one Sunday. He said, would you play your guitar and sing for us? Well, Mike got up there, and he was just a newborn Christian. He didn't know a lot of Christian songs, but he knew a lot of rock songs. And he knew the house of the rising sun. And he knew Amazing Grace. So he put the two of them together. But it came out, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. My church was so embarrassed. <laughs> Mike never came back. We didn't want those people in our church. And the Jesus movement passed our little church by. They, they couldn't find churches that would accept them. So with all these new Jesus freaks running around with the long hair and stuff, the legalists were running around saying, does not nature itself teach you it is a shame for a man to have long hair? And of course, without churches for these people to get plugged into, they had their own Bible studies and they came up with their own weird theology because they had no guidance and some of them didn't even make it. 
the ones that were able to be accepted into churches, some of them assimilated, some of them got in, and, and of course their lifestyle changed as Christ came into their life. But the fact of the matter is, it was a verse that was taken out of context. That does not nature itself tell you? Now let me tell you why that's taken out of context. Because when we read that, it looks, it, it looks so simple. So cut and dried. Doesn't nature itself teach you it's a shame for a man to have long hair? How? Do you realize that the hair of a woman is exactly the same as the hair of a man? The texture, everything else. Now, it, it might differ by race, obviously, but it doesn't differ by gender. So how, how does nature teach? I mean, man's hair will grow just as fast as a woman. It might fall out sooner. The old male pattern baldness we've been cursed with. But other, there's, where, where's the difference? Where's the difference? Because if neither one of you cut your hair for the rest of your life, women will have hair down to her heels and men will have a Princeton haircut their entire life. Is that, is that the way? Is that what, how does nature teach us anything? Well, see, the word nature was a, an unfortunate interpretation of the original language. Nature could have meant uh, one of three things. And one of those things is obviously nature, like we're thinking right now. The second one is what is actually found in the world around us. And the third one is what has become customary. It, in the Greek, that would, any one of those things would have perfectly fit the definition of nature. So when Paul is saying this, obviously he's not talking about what happens in nature. If you go out in the wild and you find people that, that have never been instructed by culture that that nature tells us men have short hair and women have long hair. It just doesn't work. But culturally and throughout the centuries, it typically the women have had more interest in their hair than the men have. The men may have not cut their hair as often as they do today or the styles they have today, but the women always distinguish themselves from the men by their hair. That was a typical thing in culture. So Paul is appealing to the practice of culture over the centuries when he says nature. If you would substitute that nature, uh, doesn't the practice of culture teach us this is just the way things typically are? And if you go contrary to that, you're disrupting custom. And if you're disrupting custom, you're bringing confusion into the church because we're not here to disrupt the customs in order to distract from serving Jesus Christ. So in that sense, when he says, does not nature itself, does, isn't it just typical over the centuries, we understand, m women look like women and men look like men. That's just natural. That's the way things are. We can't say that, that the difference is due to really nature, but it's due to culture. So in verse 13, Paul makes the case on the basis of what most people would consider proper in verse 14, on the basis of what is culturally natural. In no sense does Paul imply that he's establishing a mandate for hairstyles that transcends time and cultural boundaries. What is timeless and what is transcendent is that men and women should always glorify God when they worship him. And if one is in a culture that expects a certain decorum in worshiping God, we should not be offensive in our manner of worship. So we need to be sensitive to the culture around us to a certain degree. Because if culture finds it typically offensive and we just 
disregard that because we have, let's say, freedom in Jesus Christ, then culture never understands how we could ever honor God if we don't even honor cultural standards to a certain degree. Now, I realize culture is not the ultimate rule by which we live, but it certainly is something that we have to take into consideration. It was when Paul wrote the Corinthian church. He said, if you're going contrary to culture, you're not advancing the kingdom of God without difficulties in your community. They're, they're going to think you have a bunch of rebels. So he's saying, culturally, we understand that women, their hair is their glory. Culturally, men never considered their hair their glory. They didn't care. But women did. And Paul recognized that, being culturally sensitive. So in summary, when we come into worship, we don't seek to bring the world's demented practices or philosophies or trends into our worship. But it is happening. Sadly, I know of churches that the worship band warms up the audience by playing popular rock songs. It's not hard. You don't have to go very far to find that happening. You can certainly YouTube it and find many examples of the worship band as people are coming in, getting them warmed up, getting them ready for the worship service, playing the Eye of the Tiger, Johnny Be Good, or even most recently, one worship band that played Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball just to get the people in the mood to worship. And I think that is a prime example of how in worship the church errantly, mistakenly, shamefully is taking their cue from the world and said, let's do what the world does and let's make it a part of our worship experience. I think that's a stench in the nostrils of God. God's a holy God. God's a righteous God. And I want to come before him preparing myself. I don't want to come bringing the things of the world in here and saying we bring this junk in here to worship you with the tools of the world, the ways of the world, the music of the world. God's a holy God. I find myself wishing Jesus would visit and bring his whip and cleanse his father's house once again. Now, in this whole passage, and I'm very close to winding up, so just hold on with me for just a few minutes. There is the very clear understanding that Paul is recognizing the distinction of the genders. Some suggest that the Gnostics of that day, those people who worshipped knowledge, may have been promoting the development of an androgynous culture even back then where there's no real men and no real women. We're just all just, just something. And obscuring the distinctions between men and women through their dress and through their behavior. And, or there, there is some speculation by some theologians that these pagan practices of uh, the androgynous culture may have been creeping into the church. And Paul had the courage to stand up before the church and said, enough of this. I don't care what's happening in the world. I don't care what's happening with the Gnostics. God created man and he created woman and they're two separate and distinct. And, I, and, and Paul said it's not appropriate for them to lose their distinction. Men, you're a man. Be proud of it. Women, you're a woman. Be proud of it. 
And it is ungodly for a man to desire to be a woman and a woman to desire to be a man. That doesn't bring glory and honor to God. In fact, the matter is, no matter how we define nature in any of these things, the bottom line is that Paul is addressing two issues. First of all, let's distinguish ourselves from pagan forms of worship. And number two, let us not be guilty in church of blurring the genders together. That's not the church's calling. That's not the Christian mentality. If pagan males worship with their head covered, Christian males worship with your head uncovered. And do it to the glory of God. If pagan women worship with their hair down, Christian women worship with your hair up and do it to the glory of God. Let's just don't take our cue from them. And then Paul said, if anybody wants to argue with this, he said, I don't have any other rules to give you. This is it. This is all I've got. So if you're going to be argumentative, I've got nothing else. Some people read that and say we have no such custom. That if there's going to be an argument about it, don't worry about it. Do whatever you want. But that's not what Paul's saying. He said, you want to mount an argument with you? I've just made my argument. I have no other argument. This is it. But Paul was doing this within that cultural context. The application to us is this. Let us worship God and bring glory and honor to him. Let us come before him with honor and respect for him. Let us come before him in decency. Let us love him with all of our heart, all our soul, all our mind. And let's don't bring any disgrace upon the worship of God. We don't adopt the customs of arguing. Arguing doesn't solve anything. We don't adopt the customs of the world. They don't honor God. This is not multiple choice. Honor God. Honor Him in the manner of our worship. And we have times that we specifically call worship time. I know in a technical sense this, this is all worship. I understand that. And we do too. But what we have come to customarily call that times of our worship, like we did a while ago before our preaching, like we're getting ready to do again, and even the partaking of the community today is an act of worship. Let's do this to the honor of God. And when we worship God, forget about the people around you. You have come here today to tell God you love Him and to thank Him for what He's done for you. And you put all your restraints and your concerns and your hesitations and your insecurities aside and say, this is God's house and it's just me and God. And God, I want to love you and I want to worship you.